0: And welcome back to the fifth season of scene to song a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss critique and celebrate musicals as a literary art form I'm your host Shoshana Greenberg and each episode I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical musical theater writer or a topic or trend in musical theater and be sure to sign up for the new monthly e-newsletter You'll get more info about the episodes and guests and more ways to engage with musical theater past and present. Sign up now at scene to song.substack.com to make sure it's in your inbox. My guest today is David Armstrong. David has worked as a director, writer, producer, and choreographer, and is currently the producer and host of the podcast, Broadway nation from 2000 to 2018. He served as the producing artistic director and executive producer of the Fifth Avenue Theater in Seattle. During his tenure, the Fifth produced 19 new musicals, including nine that subsequently moved on to Broadway, including the Tony Award-winning best musicals Hairspray and Memphis. He currently teaches a course on the history of the Broadway musical at the University of Washington School of Drama. We're going to talk today about the 2002 Mark Shaman, Scott Whitman, Mark O'Donnell, and Thomas Meehan musical, Hairspray. Hey, David, thank you so much for being on the podcast. So excited to have you.
1: My pleasure. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Well, we will get right into our get to know our guest questions. What was your first experience with a musical?
1: The story in my family is that when I was about five years old, my mother and her friends and their and her and the friend's daughter, who was just a little younger than I am, they were taking us to the movies to see the movie Jumbo, which is the Disney movie Jumbo, the animated feature. And they ended up going to the wrong theater and we saw Gypsy instead. And I became obsessed with Gypsy from five years old on, demanded to have the cast album, played it about 9,000 times, wore out the record and forever after I was hooked on musical theater. Now I was also you know, very, I, I, around the same time, I, there was a lot of musicals on television at that point, movies, movie musicals on television. This is back in the 1960s. And uh, so I became uh, hooked on all of that, but Gypsy was certainly one of the key ones. So even though it may not have been child appropriate, it certainly was quality. So right from the beginning, I knew, I apparently knew what a good musical was.
0: Oh, Gypsy's totally child appropriate. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, for a kid, it's a movie about kids and show business.
0: Right, right. Until
1: about three quarters of the way through. And I'm sure I was much less interested after that. But as long as those kids were on the screen, I was fascinated.
0: Yeah, no, I saw Gypsy at um, seven years old and my sister was five. So we were, we were right in there. Yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> right there. Exactly.
0: What is the last great musical you saw?
1: Well, the last musical that I saw, I was in New York just a few weeks ago and I saw Company, uh, so which is one of my all-time favorite shows to begin with. I had seen the current production two years ago on the last night it played before the shutdown during when it was in previews and um, was thrilled to be able to go back uh, just a week before last to be able to see it again. Mm-hmm. And it is a... I love that show, and I think this new version of it, is, it certainly is. I consider Company a great musical, and I think this new version of it is doing it justice to a to a great extent. I really think they've done a fantastic job. I still love the original version, perhaps more than the re, than the current one, but the current one's pretty fantastic.
0: Yeah, that was actually my first show back since. Pandemic. Um, what is a musical people would be surprised to find out you love, and why would they be surprised?
1: You know, I teach a course at the University of Washington about the history of the Broadway musical. So I'm very, very invested in the great musicals of all time, but I also like some not so great musicals, as I think we all do. And uh one of the although I put it in a pretty great category is I love Little Abner. Little Abner is one of my all-time favorite shows. Again, it's an album I had when I was a kid, and there's no greater number in terms of just sheer joy than Jubilation T Corn Pone, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, that's a record I could listen to over and over and and have listened to over and over. But any day of the week, I would put on. Uh, Little Abner and be extremely happy. And I actually love the movie of it because the movie sort of gives you a chance to go back and see what it was like to see a 1950s musical comedy.
0: Yeah, no, I love Little Abner. Uh, my my middle school did it when I was in fifth grade, so I saw it at like a young age, which was like a good time to see it because it has like, it's so silly. <laughs>
1: totally. It's totally uh, uh, kids love that show just because mm-hmm. it is so, so silly. And yet it's actually the satire of it is very smart and very yeah. sort appointed. Once you're an adult, you realize that it really is political satire at a very uh, sophisticated level in many ways.
0: Who is your favorite hero character or protagonist in a musical? And who is your favorite villain or antagonist in a musical?
1: That's so interesting. Um, Two people come to mind, two characters come to mind who might fall into both categories at the same time. Number one, Harold Hill is probably my is certainly one of my favorite characters and one of the greatest characters of all time. And because he's an anti-hero to a certain extent, he's sort of, uh, I wouldn't quite say he's the villain of the piece, but he has his dark side to him. Right. The other person I was going to bring up is Sweeney Todd, who is also mm-hmm. another great anti-hero who kind of is the villain of the piece. Right. And that, uh, you know, the writing of that show is so amazing because we're able to, invest ourselves in him we really root for him even Mm -hmm. though we can't stand by what he's doing at all we still want him to achieve the the justice he's trying to get even if he's going about it in the most horrible worst kind of way
0: what is your favorite musical that no one else has heard of
1: one of my all-time favorite shows is a show that does not get done very often and probably a lot of people I've only vaguely heard of it, and that's the show uh, Jacques Brel is alive and well and living in Paris. It's one of my all-time favorite shows. I would put it up that it's in my top ten. I've directed it several times, and uh, just love everything about it. Even though it is the last, it's a it's a very strange show and very unlikely to be a hit because it's basically the same song twenty-five times. And yet somehow it works like Gangbusters. It well, just
0: that's a great song twenty five times. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is a great song, and it's sort of a droney kind of French song that yeah. just sort of goes over and over. And yet somehow it is a powerful, amazing, uh, totally satisfying show. And it's a review.
0: Yeah, there was a production here maybe like fifteen years ago or so that I saw, and I remember really enjoying it.
1: Is that you are you're in New York, right? New York. Yeah. Now, yeah. That off-Broadway production that they did about 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I've seen a number of productions over my lifetime. And what's so amazing about that is that audiences go crazy for that show.
2: Yeah. They
1: just go crazy. And yet it's really hard to talk any producers into doing it. <laughs> Even when I was running my own theater, I had trouble talking my staff and other people. We finally did it. And it was a Uh, It was quite successful, and the audiences went nuts and came back. People get obsessed with that show and come back time and time again.
0: What is a moment in a musical that you think gets to a complex emotional state you didn't think was possible to get to?
1: I'm going to say the three big decision moments. Fiddler on the Roof, those soliloquies, where he uh, has the, on this hand, on the other hand, where he's grappling with the, the, you know, his daughter's wanting to break with the traditions.
2: Right.
1: And each of those is fantastic. And then the third one gets so complicated because we really want him to, you know, give his third daughter what she wants. And at the same time, we completely understand why he can't do it. And I think that is a really sophisticated, uh, dramatic, complicated, dramatic moment.
0: Yeah. And I guess it's like the rule of threes where like, yeah, like it wouldn't have as much impact if uh, you had Only
1: two of them. Yeah. Or there were four.
0: Right. Right.
1: Yeah. There's a reason there's three main daughters and not four main daughters. Yeah. You're absolutely right about that.
0: Well, great. Let's move on to our topic, which is. Uh, the musical hairspray and um, we're talking about this now because uh we're coming up on its 20th anniversary which when this is released on the actual 20th anniversary so
1: fantastic and August yeah
0: yeah August uh I think 15th we said yeah, yeah. 15th yeah. Uh, of this year is the 20th anniversary of hairspray so a great time to Revisit the show, talk about the show. Um, and you have like, a particular history with this show.
1: Well, it's hard to believe it's been 20 years. It certainly <laughs> doesn't feel like it's been that long. Uh, it, it's been a when I realized this was this summer was going to be the 20th anniversary uh, summer for the show. And for me, it is a whole summer because my involvement uh, sort of spans the, the, the summer 20 years ago. Because I was the uh, producing artistic director at that time of the Fifth Avenue Theater in Seattle, where I still live, and uh, we uh, produced with in tandem with the New York producing team the world premiere of Hairspray at the Fifth Avenue Theater that year, and it when the the first it opened. Uh, in June at the Fifth Avenue, and then uh, and played for a three-week run, uh, quite successfully and quite excited. It was a very exciting time to be involved. And then the show uh, then opened on Broadway in August. So it was a very quick turnaround between the world premiere that we did here at the Fifth Avenue, and then the the Broadway opening. And I. Uh, was, uh, you know, privileged to attend the Broadway opening in New York. And to so that the, the, the whole summer uh, just brings back so many memories. And it was an incredible show uh, to be in that room on the very first performance at the Fifth Avenue Theater when no one had any idea what they were going to see. Mm. Uh, I had been to the readings in New York and had been involved in uh, as we were deciding to work with the producers to do the show, I'd been involved to a great extent, but you know, the producers, nobody involved the writers uh, could not have anticipated the excitement. And it's hard to th- remember because now we think of Hairspray as a big giant hit, mm-hmm. big Tony award-winning hit at that moment. It was a show that nobody really had any uh, great uh, anticipation of none of the writers, Tom Meehan, another book writer, but none of the other writers had ever written the Broadway show before. There were no big stars. Even Harvey Fierstein was not a giant star yet at that time. Hairspray sort of propelled him into that. Uh, And nobody else in the show was very well known. It was not it just had not a large profile. So there was not a great anticipation about this is going to be the new hit show of the of the season or at all. So When the audience came into that theater that night, our subscription audience at the Fifth Avenue Theater, who was just coming to see a show, they knew they were coming to see a new show, which in some ways was probably uh, negative to a certain extent, because they didn't know what to expect. They didn't know what it was going to be, and that we didn't have a history of doing new shows yet. This was what put us on the map in that regard. So this was a big sort of unknown for the audience. And I often describe it as that the the opening number happened, the sh- number that we, you know, uh, Good Morning Baltimore, although it didn't have the little mini overture before it, it just started right with that vamp, bump, 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 and the, cur- the drop went up and, uh, and Tracy's on the stage and starts singing that. Of that song the audience screamed i've never heard an ex- uh, something like it they just just gave, there was such excitement in theater and then they screamed after every single number in the show and then at the end they wouldn't go home they were just it was you knew you were in experiencing something that was would never happen again that way that kind of sense of we're discovering this brand new hit show just out of the blue it was truly thrilling
0: wow so i imagine they were since this was like the pre-broadway that they were still kind of working on the show very um, much so. you know going with not a lot of time because it's not like they then like took what they learned from that production and like had a year to implement it so like what what were some of like the the big changes that you can remember that took place you know during that that time
2: yeah
1: uh It's interesting because in hindsight now I can look back and see that this was one of the shows that was the most pulled together, the most fully formed out of the box Mm
2: -hmm. on the
1: first day of, because we ended up doing, during my 20 year, 18 years at the Fifth Avenue Theater, we did nine, uh, we set nine shows to Broadway. So for Hairspray was the first one. And we said we did a whole string of new musicals and nine of them, 21 new musicals and nine of them went to Broadway. So I got to go through this experience nine more times and in high and all of those other shows uh, were in much of an earlier shape than the hairspray was, which we didn't know at the time because it was brand new, no. but they're still worth some things they were struggling with. The two thing, the thing that jumps to mind first and foremost was the song Baltimore Crab, the song that um, Velma Von Tussel song. Uh, there were three different versions of that even while we were at the fifth avenue mm-hmm. so they kept rewriting that and ended up with the baltimore crab song that you see that you hear on the cast album and of course then they rewrote it again when they made the movie so that's been the that's i think the the writers of the show struggled the most with finding velma's uh, initial song <laughs>
3: Enough.
4: <laughs> oh my god, how times have changed. his girl's either blind or completely deranged. Oh, but time seemed to halt when I was Miss Baltimore. Crabs. childhood dreams for me were cracked when that damn Charlie Temple stole my friggin' ass. But the crowns in the vault. And when I won Miss Baltimore, crabs, those poor runners. Might still hold some grudges, they padded their cups. But I screwed the judges, those broads thought they'd win. If a plate they would spin in the dance. Ah, not a chance, cause I hit
1: the stage. The other big thing, which I think will surprise people, is that the song that was the most um, controversial prior to the first performance, during the workshops and during the rehearsals, Uh, for the Fifth Avenue production pre-Broadway was I Know Where I've Been, the song that is sort of the 11 o'clock spot that uh, uh, Motormouth Mabel sings. Margot Lyon, who was the lead producer on the show, an incredible woman, such a talented, amazing producer. And it was really her idea. She was the one who sat, she was sick uh, at home and was watching movies and she saw the movie of Hairspray, the original movie, John Waters movie, and thought I should make, this is what my next project should be. I wanna make this into a Broadway musical. She put the whole team together. She hired the writer. She hired the director. She, it was her, entirely her baby. And she was the one, even though she thought this was a fantastic song, she was just worried. And some of the other producers were that the tone of that song was not going to work in the sort of silly tone of Hairspray. And it's, in hindsight, it's, I can both understand how they felt. And I really understood at the time, because I had sat through the workshop and you saw the song and it was a fantastic song, but you just weren't sure, you know, you never know until the audience is there what, how something is really gonna land. And so every, a lot of people were nervous about that the writers of the show, Mark and Scott, were adamant that that song was perfect for the show. It was one of the first songs they had written for the show. They would not back down. So they finally made an agreement that that song would play at least the first performance in Seattle before they made a decision about it but margo was positive that song was not going to work again not because she didn't think it was a good song she just didn't think it was going to work in the show she thought it would they would do the song and the audience was sort of go just be confused about how that fit into the the overall tone of hairspray so at that First performance, um, I was sitting next to Margot, and as I said, the audience screamed after every song, and it built and it built, and finally we got to that number, and uh, Mary Bond Davis, who was the original actress who played the part, was sensational. She starts singing the song, and the audience got very quiet. And she and she launches into the number and it builds and it's a you know, it's such a great song. but you just at the end of the song is I remembered and maybe I've exaggerated it in my mind, but there was sort of like this moment of silence and you weren't sure what the audience was going to do. And then the audience screamed louder than they had screamed for any other song prior to that. And Margot, God bless her, uh, she turned to me and said, Now we'll never get that out of the show. (laughs) (laughs) And she would tell that story herself. Unfortunately, she uh, she's no longer with us. But I've heard her tell this story multiple times about how she just misjudged what was in some ways the the statement of the show, the show, the song that really summed up what the whole show was about. But it just shows you you couldn't see that from until you could see it until the audience showed it to you that that was perfect for the show.
5: And there's pride in my heart
0: In musical tone, in anything is so hard to really, because you 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 for kind of forget that you do need kind of different tones to you know balance, especially in theater where people I feel like audience need a little bit of like release here and like let humor here of seriousness here, and it's like you can have different tones in a show. It's just like getting the right flow and balance and all that. I think a lot of the time.
1: Absolutely, I think you're absolutely right. And they were also worried that the song was going to be come off as preachy Mm -hmm. as sort of like, here's the moral of our story. And, you know, being teaching something and it didn't, but I can, you know, I understand why they were worried about that. It's possible that a less well-written version of that song would have come off as preachy, but Mm -hmm. that one didn't.
0: I think something about Hairspray is that like, it has a tone of like, like it's a lot of things are said that are kind of like direct and like kind of simplistic, but it's also, that's kind of like the joke in a way. So like, it already kind of sets up like, you know, we're, we're going to talk about race and we're going to like, we're just going to say it and um you know, and a lot of that's played for laughs, but then I think then it can go the other way. where are like, we're going to say like this thing and maybe it's not, Maybe it, we're worried it could come off as preachy, but we're we're still being like direct, and this is what you know we're saying. and but we've already set that up just in like this different tone.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, It's a deceptive show, uh, because it's so it works almost in spite of itself. There's so much about it that you think shouldn't work.
2: Mm-hmm. because
1: it's gonna be simplistic or it's gonna reduce the serious subject matter to, it's, it, it, it doesn't make fun of it, but at the same time, it's, it's very irreverent in many ways with what are very serious issues and very themes, whether it's the issues of uh, you know, sizism of, of, of body, body image, which is at the heart of the show, the uh, issues of race, all those kinds of things. It's about so many sort of very powerful topics and yet it's able to do it in this sort of effervescent kind of amazingly uh, joyous uh, format.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think, well, I mean, we can talk through the show a little bit, especially for for folks who um, don't know it. I guess I should say my history with it is that I, I did see the original production, but not with the original cast. I saw it a few years after
1: Right. Well, because it ran so long. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) After I did, I had um, actually Margo Lyon was a teacher at my grad school. She was like a recurring guest teacher. So Oh great. So the shows uh, at NYU. So the shows um, that she was producing, we got to go see. So but by the time I was there, it was a few years into it. And then I saw the movie when it came out, which I actually I don't know if this is bad. I love I actually love the movie more than the show. (laughs) (laughs)
1: It's a great movie. There's no two ways about it.
0: I saw it like maybe two, I I think I saw the show in like 2005 and then the movie came out in 2007.
1: No, it's a terrific movie. It's one of the best of the, I think, contemporary movie musical adaptations. So I I don't, I I don't disagree with you at all there.
0: Yeah. As you mentioned, like there's that great opening number, Good Morning Baltimore. And I, it's funny, my favorite songs in the show are the first and the last song yeah yeah like yeah a great way to I mean other people probably have different opinions on favorite songs but for me it's like they got me right at the beginning and <laughs> they got me right before I left so I'm like yep <laughs> love the show because the first and the last songs
1: well they always say you gotta if you're gonna do two great songs you better do the, the one at the top and the one at the end yeah, so- what you, drags you in and what leave what you remember on the way out
0: yeah, so that re- those really work for me. So yeah, the, the first song, yeah, has our the main character, Tracy. What I love about this song is she, it's like simultaneously her I Want song, yeah, plus the opening number, plus like the world setting, like we're in Baltimore, and like this is what happens when I walk down the street in Baltimore.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, it establishes her whole world and her whole personality all in one fell swoop in this, and in a, and with a lot of uh, incredible humor as well.
0: Yeah. And I think it also sets up like the tone of, like the tone of song for the show. Like these are all going to be like these 60, 1962, 60s style songs that like, we're going to tell this story within that framework.
1: And right from that. And, and, you know, they, the writers did that. So brilliantly right from that vamp, the bump, You know, right at the top, you just know, oh, this is the world we're in. This is this. This music is going to establish this time period so strongly.
3: I know every step. I know every song.
1: I think what's so amazing about the score is that they are pastiche songs. Mm -hmm. They are, you know, and many of them are sort of modeled very closely to action, to songs from the You sort of name, which songs they were using as their models. And yet they wrote songs that live on their own, that stand totally on their own, that you don't feel like they're, they're imitations at all. Right. And then we go into the, um, the immediately we go to the corny collins show Mm. and uh where we get the split stage with uh penny and and tracy watching the corny collins show on television and we see the the nicest kids in town uh being introduced on the corny collins show
4: Behind. And then they shake it, shake it, shake it like they're losing their mind. You'll never see them frown cause they're the nicest kids in town And I'm the man who keeps it spinning around Mr. Corny Collins with the latest
0: Uh, this is less and less of a thing. But like, I remember as a kid having localized TV shows and to have that kind of be back in, (laughs) in a story is nice, a nice callback. Of course, that's from the movie. And that's what John Waters, you know, But it's actually
1: from John Waters real life, too. I mean, he he grew up in Baltimore, it was the Buddy Dean show. And that was uh, every city sort of had a local version of of American Bandstand mm-hmm. before American Bandstand became a national show. And then American Bandstand, which was in Philadelphia, originally became a national show. And that was part of what Margo was from Baltimore as well. So part of this was her memory of watching the Buddy Dean show as well. So it came from their real experience.
0: Oh, well, Yeah. I had read that, you know, it was, um, that it was based on that real show and that they, that, that real show had tried to, to integrate, or people wanted it to integrate, and then it, but instead it was canceled.
1: <laughs> yeah, they actually had Negro Day if it was a real thing. It sounds like a ridiculous satire, but apparently it was absolutely real in Baltimore in that period.
0: In uh, Harrisburg, it's the one. What is it? One day a month is. Yeah. The black people are able to do their dance. Have a
2: chance to be
1: on the show, exactly. Yeah, to to appear on the show.
0: Yeah, uh,
1: motor, my, now, motor mouth Mabel gets to be the host of that, uh, or or want the co-host of that, of that day.
0: Right, and then yeah. Tracy, her whole thing is my favorite line in the show. <laughs> I wish every day were a Negro Day.
1: <laughs> exactly, and uh, seaweed says at our house it is.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I all, I even think like what does she even what does she even mean by that? Like, does she, I mean, obviously she wants integration, but actually if every day were Negro day, then it would just be every day like that. The, the black dancers would have the show for themselves also, which could also be like, a, you know, a great show too. Yeah.
1: I think she just wants the excitement of it and to see that great dancing that she doesn't get to see when the white kids are on. Tracy doesn't start off as a uh, with this conviction, she really just wants to be on television. At the beginning, mm-hmm. she wants to be one of the cool, one of the nicest kids in town. She wants to have that, and she sort of falls in. She discovers these uh, these um, passions along the way, and by getting sent to detention, mm-hmm. she meets seaweed, and that is the 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 big event of the show is tracy getting sent to detention because all the rest of the plot hinges on her having met seaweed in detention and learned how to do those dances and that's it's because of that that she gets on the show it's because of that that she then becomes invested in uh wanting to integrate the 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 show it's because of that that she gets her mother out of the house Mm -hmm. it's and she or, you know because there's that whole agoraphobia plot too with her with Edna you can so easily follow how this would happen to anybody how she would just get caught up in this and and become affected by the injustice of it mm-hmm. but without no but not knowing that when she starts out the play at all she just wants something for herself and then ends up wanting something for everybody
0: yeah, it, it so reminds me of uh, the musical Annie, just like that having like this optimist, like she's always like this optimistic character that just goes through like gung ho, yeah. like, but, but with like her own, you know, desire, just and any, and then in like any room she's in, just like brightening it up, changing it for the better, like <laughs> starting a new. Absolutely integrating the show
1: <laughs> uh one of the things they have in common is that tom mehan is the book writer for both annie and for hairspray
0: i knew that but it didn't like completely click and, and i was just like this is so much like annie I it has
1: a know. lot to do with tom because tom yeah. came into the show after the it, not from the he wasn't involved with hairspray from the beginning
4: mm-hmm. they brought
1: him in in the middle of the process before the f- production at the fifth avenue but in the middle of the writing process. And I think he really strengthened the character of Tracy, just in the way you were describing it. Yeah. Providing her with that kind of motivation. And what's so interesting about the two shows is they're both very political shows. They're about politics, they're about social issues. As you just said, Annie brings the New Deal. Annie Annie causes the New Deal to happen. Right. And uh, which is really the main plot of Annie to a certain extent, right. and also then how she convinces the most arch conservative person in the world, Daddy Warbucks, to support the New Deal. The the that story that underlies Annie. Most people would not tell you that's the story of Annie, but when you really analyze it, that is the main story. It's not. It's 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 more about that than it is about anything else.
0: Yeah, and with Tracy, it's like so similar. She has this personal want and and yet like you're just so drawn yeah as you said like you're just so drawn to her optimism like if I want to do this then I can and I will and like that's what's gonna happen
1: It's a, and you know, sometimes people have criticized Hairspray and criticized the character Tracy as being sort of a white savior character, but I, it's interesting because I have my students analyze that. I teach at the University of Washington, a course, on the history of the Broadway musical and Hairspray is one of the shows that we discuss in great detail in that class. And we analyze that aspect of it. And I think that that's sort of a simplistic look at it. It's not really looking at the full picture of the show. Because although race is a central aspect of the show, the issues of um, of body image are just are equally of import of importance in the show. Mm-hmm. So those two things, and we'll talk about uh, I think we'll talk about that in a few minutes with uh, Big Blonde and Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that all comes together in that particular song and shows us that that is the how those what Tracy is passionate about are of equal weight. And I think that the, I always ask the students to analyze what the theme of a show is. What is the principal theme of a musical? Because musicals are really usually about something very deep and something very important. Even if it's, under, if we, most audiences would never identify it. It's still there and the authors know it's there. And in this case, I think hairspray. The overwhelming theme of hairspray is everyone is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Everyone is beautiful. Black, white, big, uh, uh, any any manifestation of humanity is beautiful, and that's what she. That's what this show leaves us with at the end.
0: That's so interesting that your students are uh, analyzing it. Have you like noticed? I guess over the the years you've been teaching, like different, I guess, changes in people's perceptions of Tracy over time or just different people having different reactions to her?
1: Ultimately, I feel like everybody come and I try not to lead them. I try to let them lead the conversation. I don't want to suggest to them where it's headed. But I do think when you just look at it, you analyze it step by step we always get to the same conclusion mm-hmm. that with that that is the the theme for it. I think that they do sometimes go in the the idea that somehow, and you know, could someone write a story that that uh, little Inez is the focus of the story? Absolutely. And somebody should you know do write us write the story of an equivalent of Little Inez. But the story of Hairspray is about Tracy right. and how she discovers this passion and and her her issues, which are not, which races front and center, but so are all these other uh, issues. So I think that's where the the although students will sometimes start with the idea, well, is this a white savior story? We eventually try to we eventually figure out that it's. Uh, There may be some elements of that, but that's not overwhelmingly what's front and center in the story.
0: I think with the white savior thing, there were like some moments where I felt like this could be a white savior narrative. Not that she was like a white savior character like throughout. And that was like her trajectory, or that was what the show was overall showing. But like that there were like moments throughout where it could be like a white savior narrative it's like a com because it's like a combination of so many things going on yeah I guess when she's like leading the protest because she's the one that's deciding what to do in most of the moments because she's the main character um and right. she's leading the group of black people and you know it, it, there's moments where it can be like seen as that I think but I think overall like because there's so much going on like it tips in and it tips out and
1: I agree completely, and it's one of the challenges of any story set in the historic past is the character, the, the characters of color have limited uh, agency sometimes because of the historic elements.
0: There are moments where I think uh, Motor Mouth Mabel is is like, oh, taking over, like, okay, now we're going to do this, like, now we're going to like. There's moments like that where you know she jumps in and becomes a leader in certain, you know, in certain times. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And I think the writers very smartly gave her the two key moments in the show. They -hmm. give her the finale to the first act. They give her the, the, the bit, and then the 11 o'clock spot uh, with her, with her ballad where she drives, she inspires Tracy to
2: Mm-hmm. So in a
1: way, she's actually driving the action. She's saying, here's what we're going to do. Here's mm-hmm. what's going to happen. And then she uses Tracy in a way to help accomplish it.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's, it is tricky. Like the the lead, I think leading up to that song, she's the one that's kind of taken over, even though the song itself is, is there to inspire our main character who is white, but
1: I think they handled the challenges of it very, very well. But those challenges are are inherent in in this kind of story.
0: To me, the jail scene, which um, is not in the in the movie, but is in the show, and that that was actually the most illust- illustrative to me of like where people were at the time, because it was how they all get out of jail, which is like the they're like they put everybody into the same jail cell velma and amber uh tracy and edna and then all the the you know seaweed motor mouth everyone who was protesting yeah with them. so they're like all in the same jail cell but then you see how they all get out and it's like the uh you know velma and Aunt, her daughter amber oh like connections get them out the governor she has a connection to the governor and he just gets them out of jail they don't have to give up anything right and and then you see edna and tracy uh wilbur the husband slash father has to what he he does something with his store what is he 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 doesn't sell it but he he no
1: but he basically uh, uh mortgages it basically kind of thing yeah right uses it as collateral to get them out to get bail to post bail for them
0: right so he like they're you know they don't have a lot of money but they have something that they're able to use which is like middle class that's what middle class people have like they have they have it's like they have the money but it's everything and they have to give stuff up but they have it and then the the you know black people in the jail they don't have anything that is going to get them out and they have to rely on, you know, Wilbur gets them all out with that money. Somehow that's a lot of money. <laughs> I don't know.
2: No,
1: that's but, very, um, that's very smart. That's a very smart uh, perception of that is that that's really showing, even though, you know, the, the Tracy and her family are at the bottom of the middle class, really, right. they're they're at the, maybe, they're really more working class, but they still have a little bit of something yeah. that is able to uh, provide their privilege that the that the, the Black characters don't have.
0: Right. Yeah, it's uh, really,
1: yeah. and that's smart writing.
0: Yeah, yeah, so that, that scene to me is just, like, so, is the most illustrative to me of, like, where all the characters are, where they, in, yeah. in like, the hierarchy of things, and what gets them out of jail <laughs> except for tracy who then has to say in jail but
4: <laughs>
2: right right but
4: it's your fault that we this big doll house hey cool little ladies no need to shout
3: and don't you got an old man to bail you out ha, her daddy's a pervert a loser
5: a souse. and it's just us girls in the big doll house god i'm too young to cry i'm busted out girl so am i
0: there are so many songs yeah so many of the lyrics in the in the show are I feel like they all have these um like great hooks uh to the song oh
2: yeah
0: are kind of like this is the main idea of the song um that you know dramatically we're conveying in this moment and the rest of the lyric is kind of like you know it's a you know it's it's a good lyric but it's more of like a of of that style song than like Mm -hmm. a dramatic song. That's like where there's like a turn and it's moving, you know, I mean, some of them are sequences, so it works a little bit more in that way, but especially things like I can hear the bells, you know, or (laughs) stuff like that.
1: And they're very long form songs. I mean, one of the things Mark Shaman wanted to do is he wanted to sort of convey that 1960s, uh, uh, now it's just eluding me now, but like the power of sound, there's like oh a, the wall. There was of sound. Like a wall of sound. Yeah. Exactly. Thank mm-hmm. you. That idea and that the way those songs would, and he sort of exaggerated it to make them have even more theatrical impact, but they build and they build and they go on for longer than you think. I remember when I first yeah. heard the demo tape of the show, because I, the first time I heard the score was on the demo that was sent to us and um. I thought these songs are really long and it wasn't clear at that point how they were going to, you know, you you were reading the script and you're listening to the songs and you thought, are these songs too long? But then in context, they just really just would build and build like uh, without love, as we just mentioned, that just song just keeps has all those key changes and all those modulations that just keep it moving up. And it's so thrilling and exciting.
0: Yeah. It's like the drama is coming from, the builds, but well, I think also things are happening in the scene, and the song is like carrying that along. But yeah, I think very few songs are like an AABA structure. No, they're
2: more; they're
1: all more a little more complicated than that for the most part. Yeah, and, uh, timeless to me is probably the one. Oh, song yeah. in sort of a yeah, yeah.
0: Before we go into the "why is this so good" section, I'm just wondering sure. like, how we think about the show, kind of like what when it came out in 2002 versus today just like thinking about the show in the different time time periods like 2002 when it came out how we were how we were thinking about race how we were thinking about fatness how we were you know what we were as a a country and then like today yeah um 20 years later (laughs) what how things have changed uh yeah or not or not, yeah. I mean, I think yeah. as I interject, the conversations on race and fatness have definitely evolved since then. And like how we how we maybe talk about them or portray those conversations have evolved.
1: I think the show was in hindsight now incredibly forward thinking and way ahead of its time in terms of that. And when you think back to the original movie of hairspray back in the I guess 70s or early 80s I can't remember exactly when that the yeah, was original the John 80s. Waters movie was yeah. was it the early 80s yeah
0: I think it was I think uh, it was 88 actually um, oh was
1: it that late I didn't remember it being that late but yeah I'm, I'm sure you're right but with Ricky like um that what John Waters issues he's dealing with are really ahead of their time in some ways, because we're just now catching up with so much of that Mm -hmm. and grappling with it. I think also what he was able to do, and I think it's sort of uh, not that it makes people uncomfortable today, because I think they still just fall in love with Hairspray and fall in love with the characters in the story. But my students, uh, I think, are sometimes surprised to see these serious subject matter dealt with from this comic persona point of view yeah and it can at first you can think well should we be doing that should we be should this be funny and of course that's what gives it the power i think is the fact that it's able to be dealt with in this satiric comic standpoint i think it's more powerful than if it was a serious statement about all these things
0: yeah no i think that's true and yeah, and I think there was like this came out, you know, after 9 11. And I think like the attitude after nine eleven was like, we want, you know, stuff that even if it's going to tackle serious issues to have like more of a, you know, a lighter tone um, and not be, you know, super serious. But yeah, I think now, even though like a lot of serious things are happening, I think, I think people more are want to face them in a little like, a little more, maybe not like you know. People still want like humor, and people still want you know all that stuff. But I think this is my sentence. But it seems like there's more yeah. of like a a desire to look directly at things instead of it. It'll really be under the guise of <laughs> of this, you know. <laughs> I think hairspray, like the humor, a lot of it comes from like there's a meta to it. Um, kind of mm-hmm. making fun of like how ridiculously we do talk about race <laughs> and, and how yeah. they did in 1962, but also today, like the, just like how excited they are to be in white people invited to the black people, black people's like community and like, Oh, I'm so cool. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm so cool to be in. <laughs>
1: That's a great scene when they all get to go to the to the black neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. Hilarious.
0: Like if you if you just look at it at one level, it's like, oh my God, like this is ridiculous. But it it, but it's also like actually making fun of that, I think.
1: Well, and satire is, I think, one of our most powerful tools, but it's also a scary tool because it is again the humor, you run the risk of offending somebody when you're satirizing something. And you know, and because it's a critique. Mm-hmm. satire is inherent, inherent a critique of society which i think is personally more uh powerful and more interesting than just sort of a, a, a straightforward uh comment on on things very often probably why i like uh, uh little abner so much because it yeah. also is doing a lot of the same thing and and annie's doing that as well annie yeah, yeah. is 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 satirizing to a certain extent and uh the the politics of of the 1930s
0: yeah yeah and I think also things that just in terms of what's evolved I think we're more now than 20 years ago looking like looking at things like race and fatness as more systemic than Mm -hmm. individual not that people weren't saying that 20 years ago but I think the general culture is more caught on to that idea that it's not individually we can overcome race you know if we all believe you know (laughs) whatever it is but that like we're I think we're now looking at like yes there are systemic things that and, and that's kind of coming into our stories more than it was 20 years ago
2: absolutely
0: and I think hairspray I think it does have more of an individual lens, even though it does like touch on systemic things. I wonder if it had been written today instead of 20 years ago, if more of like the systemic idea would come into it. Mm -hmm.
1: A musical is going to be driven by a dynamic character Mm -hmm. who's going to exemplify how individuals can make change in the world although I think the systems are exposed by what yeah. she's talking about, right. it's still gonna be, I think the it's gonna tell us that we each need to do our part. Right. And maybe that's an okay message. Yeah. Yeah,
0: for sure. And um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times when you go up against systems, like most of the time you're gonna fail. <laughs> and
2: yeah, we definitely yeah.
0: in a musical need to see a win. <laughs> instead of a failure at least at the end it's a hard especially in musicals like it's a very hard thing to to do is to to talk about systemic to have characters go against the systems because it's very hard to to win in those situations
1: Yeah. I mean, mostly they go against society, which is its own kind of system, I guess, or represents the system.
0: Let's move on to our why is this so good section. So we're still talking about Hairspray. We'll just talk more specifically about the song Big Blondes and Beautiful, uh, which is the act one finale. So why did you pick the song for Why Is This So Good?
1: I think because I've come to appreciate the craftsmanship of that song so much by teaching it now. And as we go, as I lead my students through this process of analyzing the story and the themes of the show, it's what they were able to do in that song is um, bring all the concerns of the show, all the themes together into one thread and, and equalize them, sort of put them, show us that they're all of equal importance. Uh, there's a woman named Stacy Wolf. I don't know if you know her. She's an academic. She's written several books. Do you know Stacy?
0: I don't know her, uh, but I know. But of,
1: she has uh, in one of, she has several sort of feminist look at the musical book. She's a fascinating uh, woman. And she talks about the, uh, the, there's a tradition in the musical theater of First act finales of female self-assertion.
2: Mm.
1: And she traces these from Don't Rain on My Parade to Uh, to, uh Everything's Coming Up Roses. You can sort of trace them through the history of the Broadway musical. And what's fascinating here is that they give the female uh, the, the, the song of female self-assertion. To Motormouth rather than to Tracy Mm -hmm. at the end of Act One. She's the one who gets to have this moment in the show. And she leads Tracy and she leads Edna. I mean, they end up all three of them singing it, singing with her. They all and and the whole ensemble as well. But it's Motormouth who asserts herself at the end of this to say to the you know which is this is where the protest happens in the show as opposed to in the in the movie Mm -hmm. this is where they they're going to protest the um the uh they're they're on purpose going it's mother-daughter day at the at the uh, corny collins show so they're going to go there as uh mother-daughter of uh people of color and and tracy and and edna to uh protest the 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 discrimination of the show. And she, I think by putting this weird frame on it, by uh, where big, I'm big, blonde and beautiful, is her assertion is I am a big woman. Mm -hmm. I am, uh, I'm black, but I'm blonde. So right away she's making a statement about, I get to be what I wanna be. Mm -hmm. I don't have to follow any of the rules and I'm beautiful, and she gets, that message is what inspires, so the big and the black and the blonde and the beautiful all come together in this message, this is who we are, and we're going to, we're going to use that, we're going to flaunt it, we're going to put it in everybody's face, and we're going to not apologize for anything, and it's that same, uh, liberate it's a message of liberation Mm
2: -hmm. just
1: this in the way that almost all those uh songs of female self-assertion are sometimes they're very personally motivated um but they're they're women who are saying i'm not going to abide by the rules i'm going to do i'm going to flaunt the what can what society wants me to do I call them transgressive women. A lot of uh, musicals are, the majority of musicals are built around these transgressive women who refuse to do what society tells them to do. So that's the tradition that's been handed on here to to this song, which does so many things. Number one, it uh, it accomplishes the goal of this moment, which is to say, we're gonna go and uh, we're gonna mount this protest and we're gonna change the world it inspires Tracy to have this deeper level of, of, of commitment about the world, as opposed to just her only, not only just wanting what she wants, she right. wants to be on television. Now she wants, she's inspired by a greater purpose. And Edna, who's the you know, third main character, it's, this is the woman who wouldn't leave the house 10 minutes ago who now, who hadn't left the house in years since, whether well, there's a joke about that, about since the Mamie Eisenhower or something, I can't remember what that oh, joke yeah. is. But so she, uh, she, she's literally, talk about a serious issue. This is an agoraphobic who's afraid to leave, leave her own house. And Tracy first gets her out of the house with Welcome to the 60s. And now Motormouth gets her to go downtown and protest, stand in the street and and flaunt who she is when she was even, she was ashamed to be seen prior to that. So to me, this moment operates on so many levels all at the same time, and yet it's so delightful and funny. And that's the, you know, sort of the magic of John Waters then put through the lens of all these other creators we're able to achieve that. So to me, that's why it's so good. That's why that is so good.
0: The joke is, I haven't been out of this apartment since Mamie Eisenhower rolled her hose and bobbed her bangs. That's the line.
1: Exactly. Yeah, so she, that was back in the 50s. So we know yeah. that it's been a long time since right. she left the house.
5: Once upon a time, girl, I was just like you. Let my extra large, large just shine through Hair was brown and nappy, never had no fun I hid under a bushel, which is easier said than done Then one day my grandma, who was big and stout She said, you gotta love yourself from inside out And just as soon as I learned how to strut my funky stuff. Found out that the world and large cake
0: it's interesting you uh, talk about it not being a song the the song for Tracy I feel like Tracy's like confidence song is is kind of the opening number in a way like you don't like she's she's discovering something new in this song but it's not that like kind of what did you call these these songs again like
1: Uh, a song of female self-assertion.
0: Right. She doesn't need to assert herself in this moment. She kind of already did that. She did that from
1: word one. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And I think it's one of the things that's confusing I talk to my students about is it's hard to register Tracy's level of marginalization in the world Mm -hmm. because she's so confident from the beginning and so assertive. But I think Edna fills in that blank. Her mother shows us the level of marginalization mm-hmm. that these characters, that these, uh, you know, overweight by the way society perceives them, characters on the lowest end of the economic ladder. I mean, Edna has to take in laundry mm-hmm. to, to survive, Uh, Yes, Wilbur has a store, but it's the lowest end of a retail establishment you can possibly have.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: I think that's another brilliant part of the writing is that Edna allows us to see the reality of the situation and the shame that they that she has and that Tracy uh, actually uh, has inherited as well. She's just has this teenage vitality that is able to overcome it, at least briefly.
0: Yeah, you mentioned how ridiculous the, the song is. Um,
1: it's ludicrous.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's funny. I mean, what I actually what I love about the lyric is just the, how um, they keep rhyming, rhyming beautiful with all these different words, um, which, I mean, there are definitely a lot of words that rhyme with beautiful, but it's not, I don't think it's a word that gets rhymed that often in one song. It usually yeah. not rhymes like at all <laughs> I think in songs especially this You're amount. You're absolutely right. So I to me that's like the most fun thing about the song even though it goes into all kinds of I guess a, I mean as a lyricist talking but it gets into a lot of like ways like that she loves food and all this stuff but for some reason the 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 consistent rhyming of beautiful is is what gets me with this song. <laughs>
5: <laughs> because I'm big, polite, and beautiful. And, Ender, girl, you're looking so recruitable. Why sit in the bleachers, timid and afraid, when Ender, you can be your own parade?
1: And, you know, the food is all there to sort of celebrate the 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 weight to, to, to flaunt it to say this i'm not going to be ashamed of this i'm going to relish in it yeah i'm going to be who i am and yeah. it's sort of that reclaiming it's that claiming uh your what people use against you as as and turning it on a head to so then you they it has no power anymore because you've you've reclaimed it
3: i uh-huh. mom
5: i
0: move on to our final section uh something where we just talk about something in the musical theater world that is uh upcoming or we want to give a shout out to you know that we've seen or read or experienced recently
2: yeah
1: it's a you know it's such a weird time because we are uh i'm so you know grateful that things have started to come back and that we have you know there but uh, I may put a slight damper on this because I think that what we all need to do is just go out and really see whatever's happening because it's not very secure right now. I know this from here in Seattle that the audiences hadn't fully embraced going back to the theater yet. And the same thing is true in New York. We wouldn't see shows like Company Closing and so many other shows that, would have run through Christmas or would have run through. Uh, uh, so I guess my answer to this is sort of a two-way story is that uh, what's so exciting and so wonderful, something, this thing that's wonderful is that theater is that theater is available again, mm-hmm. that it's being done. It's an app. And I, you know, am encouraging everybody I know and everybody I meet to go Mm -hmm. Just go, do not assume it's going to be there because it's really a very tricky time, especially for regional theaters across the country. I felt things were scary like two years ago, but in some ways I'm a little more afraid right now Mm -hmm. because it's just, it's got to come back in a way that it hasn't quite yet. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sorry if that wasn't as, as positive as this segment usually is, but I actually mean it with the greatest and best of attentions. I loved going to, um, to New York a few weeks ago and seeing, you know, I saw five or six shows, but none of them were full. Two things, you know, people got uh, were rightfully worried about the health aspects of it, and then people got out of the habit. Everything playing is something wonderful as far as I'm concerned right now, and we should go see it. <laughs>
0: Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's such a hard time with mask mandates. It's like how do like some do some don't. Some people will only go if there's masks. Some people only go if there's not masks.
1: And there was an incredible documentary. I think it's still on um, one of the streaming services right now called The Show Must Go On about how uh, in uh, Korea, they kept the shows running all through the pandemic.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: even when they didn't have vaccines or anything. And the the uh, the evidence is overwhelming that if you personally wear a well fitting mask when you're in the theater you will not get covid it doesn't matter what anybody else is doing
0: no i hope so i yeah
1: and that documentary really made it clear i recommend that documentary highly it's really yeah. good
0: the show well, the show must go on
1: the show must go on. I interviewed, on my podcast, I interviewed the uh, crea- the filmmakers of oh, it. Oh,
0: okay, great, and great. And it was
1: really interesting, really. Okay. So I got to see a, a advanced copy of it. It's really good.
0: Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. After this episode, Scene to Song will return again in the fall. In the meantime, you can write to scene-to-song at gmail.com with a comment or a question about an episode, or about musical theater, or if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Love this podcast? Help it find more listeners by rating it on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Follow us on Instagram at scene to song on Twitter at SceneSong, and on Facebook at scene to song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. Sign up for our monthly e-newsletter at scene Com. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald and be sure to check back soon for our next episode.